I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to this week's podcast, 1916 Rising in its Aftermath. I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and we at Irish Life and Lore in 2012 embarked on a national oral history project recording 230 interviews with the children and close relatives of the revolutionaries who fought in 1916. And you will hear a selected number of sound clips taken from the archives, which will include the voices of close family members of executed prisoners and the grandson of Captain Henry de Courcy Wheeler, who took the surrender after the rising in 1916, And finally, the Battle of Ashburn and the police barracks there that was attacked during the Rising. But first, we'll start with Father Joseph Mallon. And I visited Father Joseph in Hong Kong in 2013 because he was the only surviving son of an executed prisoner, Michael Mallon. And I first asked him, about his father's time as a British soldier in India. When he came home and was told to the family, she said in her quiet way, there were words. I think his mother probably was very angry, maybe there. But he himself, in that time, he turned very strongly against the empire, seemingly. He sent for books, you know, in Irish, to learn Irish and that. He reacted there, and I suppose things he saw in India, most of them. I've seen the, the old colonial spirit in the early days in Hong Kong. You yeah. know, they, I'm afraid they can't, not the just complete dismissal of these other peoples out there. And and so you feel that your father was affected by his uh, well, during campaign. During his time in the army, I think he must have been all right, because it was a very big switch the way he went so far, all right. Father Joseph continues here to talk about Frank Burke, his schoolmaster who taught him in St. Andrews, who was playing football in Croke Park on Bloody Sunday, and who was also out in 1916. I remember that day as well as anything. What do you remember about that day? I remember it was deadly. I was up Mount Brown and I could see up the road. And up the road there, not a person on the street. I'd, I didn't know why. Just two women with their heads together, whispering. Why whisper when nobody's around? 
what are we going to do? I could see it uh, later what they're doing. The shooting had happened in Crow Park. I was, I was well, my headmaster nearly got his name into Crow Park. I wanted to find out what part of the field he was playing. He was playing a match uh, against Tipperary at the time. I don't know. He played both hurling and and he was both on both hurling and uh, football. One there, and if he was playing, at the, I asked him later, "Were you near? Were you playing at all?" Yes, he asked. I knew it. Anyway, uh, he said he was joking to the others because were just before. See, the uh, GA was always oh. looked on as dangerous. You'll be there'll be trouble. This is before that he said that. They'd be thrown so dead, you'll, they'd be after you. He was out in 1916 himself from St. Edmunds. He know. was on the roof of the GPO from the day from Monday. Yeah. Ender de Burke, the son of Frank Burke, here explains his father's time in St. Anders School and also his involvement in 1916. If we could go back a bit to the start of that, yes. that he joined the like become the volunteers. Well, he joined the volunteers in 1913. Um, he was he was in the IRB before that, or he was in the Fianna before that. Um, 1913, he was in the first year in university, but then he joined the IRB, um, and it was Con Colbert brought him into the. Into the IRB, but um, during the preparation from say January nineteen sixteen up to up to the Easter, they were busy. He lived in Saint Andrews while he was at the university, and when he finished the university, he was immediately offered a job teaching in Saint Andrews, so that he had an unbroken uh, tenure of office, if you like, in Saint Andrews from the time from ninth to sixth of September. Uh, in 1909 up to the day it closed in 1935 completely unbroken except for the time he was in prison um, Isn't that uh, and, uh, fascinating uh, and of course the, uh, the the school was it was a big part of his life uh, Oh the school uh, was very much part of his life mm. it, was, it was his life full stop and he, everything he wanted to do there's only, the only thing in his life was St. Andrews and we lived there, and I broke his heart, I think, when it closed down. How do you mean? When it was closed in yeah, the but, uh, but he brought up his own family, you, uh, there. As well, we were there, but uh, like, I, unfortunately, I was too young to go to, the, to, yeah. go to school there. Um, and the sisters didn't go, of course, they, they, it was a boy's school. Right, okay. Know. And they were too young, too, I'd say. Yeah. But, but going, it was a secondary school, like, you know. But going back to the story, uh, so, so he... Well, they went from... They, they were preparing for the rising. They knew it was coming off. off. It wasn't, even though it was stated to be manoeuvres, they had a pretty good idea that it was the real thing. And um, they, on, on the... Um, three months before Easter, they were busy preparing bombs, hand grenades and so on, in, say, under the tutelage of the... Um, science master Pather Slattery, um, and then on the e- Easter uh, Easter week or Holy Week, these were moved out from St. Endus to various locations around the city, 
Easter Sunday morning, they were all up. They had a good breakfast. Went, went to Mass, first of all. And when they came out of Mass, they discovered that the manoeuvres, in inverted commas, had been postponed. And there was utter sort of dismay and disappointment. But they were told to go back and stand by. So he went back to St. Anne's the next morning anyway. They were, he was called early, get up and get ready. So they, they went into the GPO on, on the Monday. And um, they got the tram in from Rathfarnham. 37 of them went from Rathfarnham. And um, he wondered in later life, did they actually pay the fare on the tram or not? But he wasn't particularly worried whether they did or not. Anyway, they went in and the first sign they got of anything happening was at um, Boland's Mills that the army, the volunteers were moving the crowd back so that Bowen's Bills was in possession of the IRA at the, of, the, of the volunteers at the time. And when they got down to the end of Georgia Street, they could hear um, shots being fired, which was obviously the attack on the castle. The tram driver got as far as Bank of Ireland at Trinity College and he stopped and he refused to go any further. So they had to get out and walk from there down to Liberty Hall, College Street, um, what's the Tara Street, and Crossbot Bridge. And when they were in Liberty Hall, then they were sent up to the GPO. So he was transferred, he was sent up to the roof. He was on the roof Monday, Tuesday, until Wednesday evening. After Michael Mallon was executed in 1916 with the other prisoners, uh, Father Joseph Mallon here recalls his mother living on the White Cross. We lived on the White Cross and that, that American thing. Yeah. There were a number of people whose names I know mixed up were Wise Power and um, I think uh, Mrs. Gordon, Mrs. Stack and, and others all right, but I can't remember them all, or just a few. Yeah. That, that kept us going. She was excellent at using things. We learned to live poorly with very not much, they say. But it was hard on her, I know. Stag, um, what is Tommy Farden was uh, guardian, all right, I think. And he helped a lot. He was, along with Johnson, called out the um, railway men, you know, not yes. to bring the biggest. I like Tommy Farden, all right. Yeah. Miss Pierce, though, Oh, stepped in. She took myself and Maura. When my mother had to go to hospital, she broke down. Dr. Kathleen Lynn was looking after her, but there was something... Well, she couldn't diagnose her. They diagnose her. Then, Miss... I have a letter there. Yes. From Mrs... Uh, from Miss Pierce. And I remember the day, I remember walk, walking up to the house. I didn't know what was going on at the time. That was in 1924. And she wrote this letter to my mother to bring the two of us to, because Maura was needed a bit better things. She wasn't looking too well. We lived in, in uh, that year where my mother was in hospital. To, she, we lived in... St. Endless, and um, I stayed on there, there during the rest of my studies.
Alf MacLachlan, the grandson of Emily Pierce, who was the half-sister of the Pierce brothers Patrick and Willie, and both men were executed after 1916. And here Alf talks about his father, Alfred MacLachlan, who raised money for the White Cross. That was the White Cross Fund. So-called because they couldn't get recognition for an Irish branch of the Red Cross because there wasn't sufficiently separate jurisdiction for Ireland. There's a famous, yeah. there's a famous portrait of Pat and Willie Pierce yeah. seated on the other side of a gateway. It's, a, it's, it's in all the books. That was taken by my father and who was a keen photographer apparently. And my mother gave the White Cross people the, the copyright of that photograph and it was sold widely as a, as a keepsake or I don't know what in aid of the White Cross funds. In 1966 when Ireland was commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising Alf MacLachlan was employed by the National Library in Ireland as an assistant keeper of manuscripts. The owners of number 16 Moore Street, now a national monument, the building which the volunteers occupied after the evacuation of the GPO, paid him a visit. Number 16 Moore Street was the location of the last meeting of the rebel leaders to confer, and after which Pierce ordered an unconditional surrender on Sunday the 29th of April 1916. Alf MacLachlan describes this event. In 1966, there came to the National Library people who had re-entered a house in Moore Street after being evacuated at Easter 1916. And when they reoccupied their house in Moore Street, they found this, which they proffered to the National Library. And it was a rectangle of cardboard with nicks in the corners, which told me that it was taken out of the back of a picture frame. You know, the way Spriggs would hold them in. And it was a, a document in the hand of Patrick Pierce, which I knew, being a manuscript librarian. And it was the draft of the surrender in 1916. And it was different from the usually received version of the surrender document because it said the members of the provisional government have decided by a majority okay. to surrender. Instead of just saying they have decided to surrender, they said it's by a majority. So which means that there was a vote. There was a vote. Mm-hmm. You'd have to work out for yourself who you think it was constituted the majority because we know who was present. In the aftermath of the Rising, the National Aid Association made an effort to assist widows and orphans. Lucy Redmond's grandmother, Muriel, was a sister of Grace Clifford, who had married Joseph Plunkett before he was executed in Kilmainham. Muriel and her two children, Barbara 
and Donna were on holidays in Scary's Seaside Resort. And the holiday was organised by the Aid Association and it ended in tragedy. The two children now with either father or mother, as Lucille Redmond explains. My mother and my grandmother were 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 collecting seashells, yeah, getting pretty seashells. Um, uh, just before she uh, she went swimming and was killed, yeah, yeah. died of a heart attack, yeah. She had two memories of her own mother. One, one, both were of her hand. One was coming into uh, her crib, I suppose, to comfort her, and the other was unfortunately her hand disappearing under the water when she had a heart attack as she was swimming in Scaries on July the 9th, 1917. The, the seashells, though, are, are, uh, are they... Can you tell me where they are now? My mother had that box of seashells. It was um, a collection of shells in a, a little cosmetic box. And after my mother died, I took out a few for myself and then I gave my sister Muriel the box with the remaining shells, and she has lent them temporarily to the museum in St. Enda's in Rathfarnham. Who looked after them then? Was it, was it the, 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 the Mac, as you say, they were kidn- kidnapped by the, the McDonough side, is it? It kind of went on yeah. and on, Morris. You know, they, yeah. they were in various places. And they were dragged from house to house? Yes. Would she have spoken about that time to you, or did you ever question her uh, about her childhood? I did, and she did, yes. And was she very open about it? Or? She was and she wasn't. She was, um, she was the way people are who have had a difficult childhood, that she, she would speak about it, but she wouldn't speak about it. Sister Ida Wolf's mother, Catherine Colbert, lived in a Tay in West Limerick, and she moved to Dublin and had a house in Ranilla. And later, her brother, Con Colbert, also travelled to Dublin and lived in the same house. He lived with them and uh, I suppose they uh, they all kept it, I suppose, very quiet at the time with their families. And uh, so when he was arrested and, and uh, sentenced to death and, and was executed, how did, when word got home? He wrote letters to them all. He wrote no fewer than ten letters during his this time. The letters, I think, are in the museum. During this time of detention, he did not allow any visits from his family. Writing to his sister, he said it would grieve them too much. And here is Con Colbert's nephew, named after him. Well, he did write letters to all his um, relations, brothers and sisters, to uh, let them know how he felt. And, uh, and there was, was a lot of worry. A, a he, was quite, he seemed to be quite sort of uh, given in to the fact that he knew what was going to happen and therefore he didn't want to cause any distress. He seemed to have possessed a certain amount of calm uh, on the day of execution and just faced up to what he felt was going inevitable. And so there were quite a lot of letters to, to write to, to different all, people, all members yes, of the family. Yes, yes, and I have copies here for you, um, which you can have a look at. Dear Dan, by now you'll know where I'm gone. I want you to, if you can, repay Lila, Cathy and Lizzie the money I owe them. Give my love to all 
and remember me in your prayers. For I hope to be, I hope to be your loving brother, Con. Give my love to all and remember me in your prayers. For I hope to be your fond brother, Cornelius. Yeah, and I can understand that um, you know that he was facing um, the execution squad, so it, it could have been very easy to, to write something like that. Absolutely. Let me just see, go to this other one. Yeah. My dear Dan, it's so s- sudden to tell you of my dying. But with God's help, I'll die well, and then I'll <clears throat> pray for you and, and all that we all will meet in heaven. Give my love to Lizzie and Cathy and sometimes say a prayer for me and get all your friends to do likewise. I am your loving brother, Con. Kilmainham Jail, the 7th of the 5th, 1916. So she must have been very close to him in many oh, ways. Well, oh, she would have been, she would, yes. Oh, she was very close to him, I would gather that. Yeah. And, and uh, suffered, you know, a lot when he, when she discovered, you see, that he was involved and that, of course, that he was executed. Mm. The only thing was, I know she used to play the piano, and she never played the piano after, after that, after he died. After yes, that that was one thing I knew about it. Yeah. Mm, oh, she did. She oh, she felt it very much. Sean Houlihan, the son of Patty Houlihan, who during the week of the Rising took command of his men fighting in North Brunswick Street and later in the week he retreated to the forecourts. And after the surrender to Captain Henry de Courcy Wheeler, he refused to lay down his gun. He was in the forecourts garrison. They, uh, himself, Gary, and uh, I don't know how many others, raided the magazine fort early in the morning of uh, Easter Sunday. Monday. And uh, they then came down the quays with the, the... got some arms and ammunition in the magazine fort. They didn't get the main port and they tried to blow it up and it didn't actually blow up. And then they came down the quays and he joined the uh, forecourt's garrison under Nadelli. And uh, he then fought in the North Brunswick Street, King Street area, uh, right through to the surrender. And during that period, uh, they they were... They had a fairly fierce battle going on there, and he became some. I forget the name of the man that was was shot. Laffin. Laffin. He was the captain, and then my father was apparently elected captain of the group there then, and he uh, commanded them for a couple of days, and then actually negotiated the surrender. Uh, he insisted on getting the signed note from Pierce. Uh, which Father Augustine or Father Aloysius, I'm not sure which, brought to him. And it was then that he surrendered. And there's a very interesting article in Antoglock about uh, that whole episode in the North Brunswick Street area and the talk or the speech or the 
delivery that my father gave when they surrendered for it. He said it was the hardest task they had to do was to actually surrender. And he then marched them off to Richmond Barracks, I think it was, that they actually were brought to for, uh, well, they then were all marched off to Frankock the next day or the day after or something like that. Alex Finlater, the grandson of Captain Henry de Courcy Wheeler. There was, it, there was a small detachment um, around the four courts, and um, he, his actual name was Patrick Houlihan. And he was a young man, it sounds, and he was caught off in North Brunswick Street, and he refused to surrender. And General Lowe was concerned about this, so he said, turned to Pierce and said, would you write out another surrender note? Because remember, Harry was out there with Nurse going round the outpost, but there was this particular one that was still firing away. And so um, Pierce wrote another one out in hand, which was the 30th. And then the two monks um, went to young Patrick Houlihan and said, look, Pierce says surrender. Two, two, two monks that from one of the orders there. And they got um, Patrick Houlihan. Um, they, they, the monks were permitted to pass through the embattled lines to see him. And when this document was presented, the young, desperate rebel, as they say, reluctantly laid down his hands. During the week of the Rising, the Fingal volunteers in North County Dublin attacked an RIC barracks at Ashburn. Colin Lawless's father, uh, Joseph, and his grandfather, Frank, were both involved in that attack. He said Tom Ash was um, very brave and that, but when Dick Mulcahy arrived, he actually took over as a more of a, more of a military commander and organised it so well and kept charge of it so well in the surrounding of the barracks and uh, seeking a surrender that uh, he was very, very impressed with Dick Mulcahy's uh, commanding ability. Mm -hmm. That was one of the main things. Otherwise, he merely described the battle as better than as he would do in his book or his manuscript. And... uh, but he did one little point that did come into it later on was as they were coming to the end of the battle they were closing in on the barracks and his father, that's my grandfather were coming from outside the ring and he was sort of inside the ring a bit closer, closer to the barracks they were both shooting but his father when he came through the hedge realised that he had been shooting at his son which thought of the barracks, but it never did hear them anyway. God, that, so that, they, were that they were that close, yes. Yeah, around in different hedges coming through the different fields. So he is very shocked. His father was his father was very, very shocked to realise that it was his own people on the other side of that fence. But that was an incident, if you like. Paddy Weston, the son of Charles Weston, who was section leader in Ashburn that day describes here the Battle of Ashburn and also the attack on a lorry load of RIC officers coming down from Navan 
at that time? Mike McAllister, uh, who was the first cousin of my grandma, uh, my grandmother, uh, and he didn't surrender after uh, the Battle of Ashbourne. He went on the run. He wasn't going to surrender because he was a marksman and he was probably responsible for shooting a lot of the police. Uh, the police were just shot. They were shot on the on the road, you know, and they, were, they opened up on the police. My father's section opened fire on them. A lot they of didn't. These... They, they didn't think, you know. Yes. They didn't think. They, they just went to the police station, and the police station, four or five police in in, in Ashbourne surrendered, yeah. and then accidentally this uh, a group of fa- uh, t- um, lorries. Uh, T- uh, Crosley yeah. uh, arrived with about there's always a dispute about how many police going for Dublin mm. because of their to, to help out in the rebellion and uh, the the confusion was that they were going to destroy the, 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 the different sections the four different mm. sections of the <clears throat> the rebels who were all had different duties to do but uh, the, 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 the little attack on the barracks was over and everybody was ready to st- go somewhere else maybe to go to Garristown or something like that but in actual fact this opened up the whole thing and they had to start fighting to stop the police coming through on the main road and to find out what happened at the RIC barracks we listen to James O'Carroll who is the grand nephew of John Toohey who was the sergeant in charge at the police barracks at Ashburn he was my grand uncle and uh, brother of my grandmother, uh, Margaret uh, Tui, Margaret Mary Tui, who was herself um, a primary school teacher, principal of a primary school in Ballymurn in County Wexford. And um, my mother, in turn, um, was that woman's daughter, Margaret Tui's daughter, and she was an only child. And she inherited all the papers and documents and all the lore and folklore of the family, really. She was an only child, my mother. Well, my mother has written an account of um, the Battle of Ashburn, the so-called Battle of Ashburn, and which is obviously John, the sergeant in charge at Ashburn, was my mother's uncle. And my mother was an only child, so she got all the information directly from her mother, and also, uh, and from probably uh, her uncle, and um, the family were quite close. In other words, um, even uh, John's children, that's the sergeant in Ashburn, his children and my mother corresponded throughout their life as well. And so the families were quite close, and uh, the significance of the Battle of Ashburn um, in Irish revolutionary terms was understood, but the family had a very different view of it and um and um it was seen as a somewhat cowardly event whereby uh, the barracks were surrounded uh, the men and uh, their families inside were shot at and they had no chance at all and um there was nothing the um, later when the the supporting um, RIC men came along um uh, it was seen as they were ready and waiting for them and a lot of them died and were killed and it wasn't really seen as a great battle at all, only an ambush. There also is, of course, the big irony of the event that Thomas Ash and Mulcahy were outside and uh, little did they know that the uh, wife of um, John 
Tui, my granduncle, was a lady called Catherine Collins, and she was known to be related to the uh, man Michael Collins. Um, but they wouldn't have known that they were actually shooting at the cousin of Michael Collins inside in the barracks. Yeah. And that's a very little known fact. Yeah. Uh, but it, um, Catherine Collins is known to have been the distant cousin of Michael Collins, the wife of the sergeant himself. Now, do you have the names of the other RIC men that were there with him? I don't have their, their names, no. Okay. And, um, I'm not sure how many were there. I think uh, my mother says there were, it was John and two other men, but I yeah. don't know how reliable uh, yeah. the, the information is. Now, the the report that she, she wrote down, would you mind reading that for me? This is my mother's account of what happened in Ashburn. And uh, she begins by talking about uh, uh, the sergeant, John, her uncle. She says that John joined the RIC as a young man. I do not know exactly where he served, but he met his wife in either Athai or Nace. She was related to Michael Collins. He was also in Kilmes and Cantemede and had the misfortune, as she calls it, to be the sergeant in Ashburn, 60 miles in Dublin, 1916. Um, this is the true story of the attack on Ashburn Barracks as related by Uncle John and his son John, who was 11 years old at the time. And, of course, the son would have been in the barracks like the rest of the children. Uh, this is the account of my mother's text. Um, a couple of days before the rising, my uncle and his two, two policemen noticed lads on bikes riding around the village in large numbers. The third day they woke to find the barrack surrounded by a few hundred men. At this point, I should say, my uncle, his wife and family resided in the sergeant's quarters in the barracks and Mrs. Tui was expecting her sixth child, Peggy, in June. Gunfire started from the crowd outside. Mrs. Tui and the children lay on the floor while Uncle John and his two men responded with the small quantity of ammunition they had. But they eventually put out a piece of white material as a token of surrender. Um, Tom Ash and Richard Mulcahy were in charge of the mob who attacked the barrack and Mulcahy wanted to shoot my uncle and his two men. Tom Ash said, quote, no, the men put up a good fight and we let them go, end of quote. Mama, always grateful to Tom Ash, was always grateful to Tom Ash for that. While the barrack was being attacked, someone sent word to Navin, the headquarters, and a lorry load of police were sent to Ashburn to help. But someone else let the attackers know help was on the way, and there were trees at a crossroads near the barracks. Some of the mob climbed into the trees with their guns and killed 11 men as the lorry passed. Their dead bodies were dumped in the coal shed in the barrack and left there for a couple of days before finally being removed. After some years, an aunt of Mrs. Tui gave them her pub in Ratdowney and the family moved there. Peggy, the last survivor of the family, runs it still. This was written in the 1970s by my mother. Uh, the shock uh, she suffered during the Battle of Ashburn, as it is called, had a detrimental effect on Mrs. Tui. She developed a nervous disease which she died from eventually. I don't know what exactly it was, but she couldn't move, lost her speech and was totally helpless. She could only indicate what she wanted by her eyes. Uncle John never left her during the years of her suffering. He was a very cheerful, humorous person who saw fun in everything. The girls ran the pub, but he never stood behind the counter. His son, Jerry, and daughter, Julia, died from tuberculosis, and the other three children never married, but his son, John, did. Um, my uncle uh, died, that's uh, of the sergeant in Ashburn, died in 1948, aged 77 years. 
And finally, we leave the last words to Richard Mulcahy, the son of Dick Mulcahy, who was the second lieutenant in charge at Ashburn. And Richard explains his belief that the rising in 1916 was a great mistake. And he discusses his father's role in Ashburn and his refusal in the 1950s to attend a memorial ceremony there. I personally, of course, uh, have, uh, the older I get, the more um, convinced I am that 1916 was a great mistake. I I have great admiration for the men who died there, but uh, I think it was a great mistake, and I became a very um, kind of keen supporter of Bulmer Hobson, mm-hmm. who was very active uh, in the IRB and the effective IRB, but he was opposed to 1916, and he was right because he said uh, the way to get our own uh, country is by civil obedience, he said, and if that doesn't succeed by um, um, uh, 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 I forget the odd words now. Yeah, okay. By um, what happened in Ashburn. Oh, yes. Where they were attacked. In other words, by um, the type of activity that developed against the British during the War of Independence. All, all right. Uh, so, uh, mm. the, the people, including your father, that were central then to, to yeah. events that happened, were they, uh, were, what inspired them? What were I, they well, driven I, on I, by? I don't know. Uh, uh, when, uh, in the week preceding uh, 1916, my father decided he didn't, he knew there were. Um, uh, uh, that there were um, um, manoeuvres and things, but he didn't know anything about what was going to actually happen, and he decided to go on holidays and not to attend the manoeuvres. That he decided he hadn't gone home to Ennis to his father for a long time, so he decided to go back. But on the Thursday before him, he met Sean McDermott, and Sean McDermott called him and said, "I want you." Uh, he he had become my father had become a telephone engineer. He had done uh, six years uh, work in Dublin after he came to Dublin to train as a telephone engineer. So he was a fairly advanced person in the mm. telephone thing. And MacDermott said, "I want you to be here next um, Sunday to cut the wires." at Rahini between the telephones in Dublin and Belfast and London. And my father was very surprised about this, but anyway, he just did what he was told. And he, by the way, when he was, um, when he had superiors, he almost to a fault, he was obedient to them, you see. see. Even even when you remember the time when Costello took over the um, Thysics job, Yes. My father was far too uh, modest afterwards in not in any way interfering with Costello and Costello developed a group around himself and really my father had no, even though he was head of Fine Gael, he had no influence over Costello after that. And that was typical of him. He was the same with Carl Brew that uh, uh, although he was determined to uh, organise an army uh, based on peace line principles and all the rest, he uh, was very um, careful that 
Carl Blue was always kept informed as he was he was Minister for Defence yes. time. So, so, um, so he was a backroom. Uh, so he was backroom. Uh, now, what happened about the North of Ireland was, I asked myself about him. Did he know, it, if he knew that he was going to be responsible largely for the killing of nine innocent policemen, would he have taken part in 1916? I never asked him that question, but I would have grave doubts about uh, the... It would be very interesting to know what he would have said. I think he would have been defensive on it. But, Do um, you, yes. Uh, he... Um, when the Ashburn uh, Memorial was unfolded by Sean T. O'Kelly in 1955, mm. I think. Yes. Dad refused to go to that. And yet he was, the people who went to that, the people who were in Ashburn, knew that my father had been the main uh, influence behind the success of Ashburn. Right. And he didn't turn up for it. Imagine, yes. And he never, never, he was quite implacable. I tried to get him to change his mind, but my mother was very upset that he didn't turn up. And uh, But he was quite implacable about that. Was he adamant not to adamant. go? Adamant, he would yeah. not go, no. Right, and the, the reasons being that he, he was... Uh, I think yeah. the reason was that uh, uh, the, sometimes... People say it was because Sean T. O'Kelly was uh, doing the honours there, but I, I don't believe that at all because we had already, they had made their peace long ago with Sean T. O'Kelly and Sean T. had been uh, president since 1944 mm-hmm. and uh, he was, we had been in, with my father and mother and others had been to many functions in the Auras with Sean T and with Phyllis and my two daughters were very close to Phyllis and everything. So I don't be, I think that he must have had some kind of um, guilt about the Ashburn thing. We've come to the end of this week's podcast, the 1916 Rising and its Aftermath. Some of the voices you've been listening to are featured in an article I wrote for the Studies of Irish Literature, Cinema and Culture. The title of the book is Revolutionary Ireland, 1916 to 2016, and is published by EER Publishers in 2020. My name is Morris O'Keefe, and I look forward again to bringing you another podcast next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 